Hopefully it will not come back this week. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Thankful for Scott and the team leading us in worship this morning. Thankful for Pastor Stephen coming up and, and leading us in a time of prayer. I want to remind you of this afternoon, 4 o'clock this afternoon in our worship center. Pastor Stephen will be leading Explore 2023. If you have any questions about any opportunities to serve in our missions or reach department, all kind of stuff going on, all of you are welcome to come today at 4. Large crowd coming, moving it to the worship center to have it so anybody is uh, able to come. So 4 o'clock today is a good time for you to hear what the Lord is doing here in the life of our church as we consider how we can reach others in 2023. Acts chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. I tend to consider uh, these things as, as we look, as you know, the, the, the history of the church uh, that the Lord began, church history, begins in Acts chapter 2 ultimately. Now it goes beyond that, but how the church officially starts there and moves through and and so throughout church history, you see some major events that take place that, that kind of turn the tide or change things. I was thinking about one of those events as I was preparing for this sermon. It was the battle of, in 312 at the Milvian Bridge. Now, I'm sure all of you know about this battle, and I don't have to tell you about it. Uh, Pastor Nathan over here has already got this down pat, and he's actually grading me at this point, being a church historian. But the, the battle at the Milvian Bridge was a moment of, of uh, crisis, if you will, for leadership in Rome. There were two that were claiming the emperor's position after Diocletian had left. And, and up until this point, of course, Christianity was persecuted in Rome. It was outlawed. It was not legal. But as this battle came place over this position of power in Rome between Constantine and Maximi Maximian, this battle came at the Milvian Bridge, and the showdown was there. The night before the battle, Constantine tells church historian Eusebius that he had a vision. And in that vision, he saw his army go forth in battle under the sign of God, the true God, as he says, or the cross. So the next day, he put the cross on all the shields of his army soldiers. He put the cross on their chest. He was going to battle under the Christian God's authority. He goes to the Milvian Bridge, and the next day Constantine wins a decisive battle and rises to the throne. At this moment, Constantine, now the emperor of Rome, makes a change that was drastic for Rome at the time. Christianity, as I said, was outlawed, and Christians from Nero to Diocletian were persecuted in, in many various and sundry ways and ran and fled for their life often. But Constantine makes a decision. He says Christianity is no longer to be outlawed. Now it is the religion of Rome. It is the state religion, if you will. Christianity is not outlawed. It is now accepted and promoted within Rome's empire. And not only that, Constantine declares Rome a Christian empire. With that in mind then, everything should be great. Everything works out perfect. Everything comes now and Christians are no longer persecuted. Now they can grow and they can flourish. But what we find is that when the, everything changes, the external threats to the church, if you will, that Rome had that led to persecution and pain, now it becomes no longer there. No longer those external threats are there. So the church can flourish, except only in a few short years, the great heresy of Arius rises up. 
And within a few short years of Christianity becoming the religion of Rome, a council had to be called at Nicaea to determine whether or not this Arius, this priest in North Africa, was right whether or not Jesus truly was the Son of God. Heresy rises up. My point in bringing this is this major movement is that the church has always seen trouble from the outside, calling us persecution, whatever it may be. But at the same time, as soon as that's taken away, the church now has trouble from the inside, heresy, difficulty, pain. In other words, these things are always attacking, trouble from the outside and trouble from the inside, and the church must always be on guard against this. Last week, we discussed the devil's desire to destroy the church. And we saw the threats. We saw the, the oppression and threats and even the jail uh, uh, fear that they had with the leadership in Jerusalem. But this week, we're going to shift a little bit in Acts chapter 6. It goes from those external threats to an internal threats. And as the great Baptist statesman Adrian Rogers said, the devil would rather start a church fuss than sell a barrel of whiskey. In other words, one of the great things the devil seeks to do is not just bring trouble from the outside on the church in threats. He would rather us fight amongst ourselves as well. And Acts chapter 6 brings this to bear. And here we see this first internal struggle of the church and how they resolved it and what the solution led to is what we want to discuss this morning. So looking at Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. We read, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Par Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us today to take your word and apply it to our hearts, our lives, our church. All by your spirit, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first verse places us here in this same time period, in these days, talking about the, the time period being discussed. In these days... Uh, of the early church and the rapid growth of the church, we see two things happening. When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rises up. At the same time, there is an increasing in number, more and more people coming to faith, and, and we've seen how many have come to faith throughout the book of Acts, giving us updates and summaries of those. During this same time, we see here that a complaint will arise. Now, Acts chapter 2 tells us what was going on in the life of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And it says they did this day by day. 
Acts chapter 4 tells us that, that everyone would bring whatever they had and lay it at the apostles' feet and they would distribute it as anyone who has need. And so the background for our passage is that time in the early church that they were meeting together, the apostles were teaching them, they were fellowshipping together, they were eating together, they were doing this day by day, giving themselves to prayer, giving themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the, everyone who had need, those needs were being met. And the excitement then of this early growing church met with a particular complaint that arose because of this distribution of goods, if you will. This distribution of goods. There's two groups that are mentioned here. The Hellenists. These were Jewish people from the diaspora, if you will. They had been sent out. They had gone out. They learned a different language. They learned a different culture. And now they're back in Jerusalem. Uh, the Apostle Paul, being from Tarsus like this, and others, they, they spoke Greek. They, they uh, had raised up in a different culture, but now they're back in the church. And then you have the Hebrews. Those are the ones who were from Palestine. Those are the ones who were from that area. They spoke probably Aramaic. They had kept the traditions of the past culturally in every way. And so you have these two groups within the church, the, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking ones, and the Hebrews, the ones who spoke Aramaic. And it goes deeper in the sense that they're bringing two really different cultures into the life of the church together. And the complaint comes that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember in chapter 4, 35, 37, people would bring their goods, they would distribute them as needed. And so in this daily distribution, the Hellenist widows were being neglected. This is the complaint. And this is, by the way, no small thing. Already established in Exodus chapter 22, listen to what the Lord says. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. In other words, the Lord has already established that you must care for those who are widows and orphans. This is established so clearly here in the life of the early church. Maybe even in, in this passage, we see the beginning of it. It's established so clearly that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, says this in James chapter 1. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure religion is going to care for those who are subject in society to be ostracized or pushed out, left out. The widow ultimately is saying here that, that, that these widows are the most needing among us. They probably have no one to care for them, have no way to earn their own way. They, they must have someone care for them, and true religion is going to reflect this. While this is no small thing, it doesn't seem here in Acts chapter 6 to be intentional or deliberate. It, it, it may be, but it, it doesn't seem to be the case. This seems to be just poor administration or poor supervision that's going on. And the reason is when we look at the passage, what the solution becomes. Now, let's be clear. Let's be clear here today. As pastor here, I want, I want to say this and say it in this passage, in this context, most definitely. There are those who try to intentionally cause strife and dissension among the body and among the church. They are there. They do exist. 
And Paul says for us that those who try to cause dissension among the body of believers, we must avoid them and place them alongside liars, murderers, and those who practice sexual immorality, he says. It is a grave error, crime, or sin to seek to intentionally cause dissension among the body of believers, to raise that up. But here we see this is a legitimate concern. This is one that's not seeking to cause dissension. This is a concern that's ultimately saying in in our processes of what we do, we must be careful as a church to care for all people, especially those, especially those who are the most marginalized among us. We must be careful to care for them. And so as they come to this passage, this this must be dealt with. The apostles see it as as a problem that must be answered. And so we see a couple things here that we need to point out. The church is full of ministers for a diversity of ministries. The church is full of ministers for a diversity of ministries. As the church grows, so grows the needs of the people. The ministers become full of what they are doing. Their jobs become greater and more ministers become necessary. And surely this is a a powerful moment in the early church. A a full member of the disciples are called together. This here, as, as we've seen, is several thousand that have come to faith. And it says they called them all together. The full number of the disciples. Understand the way that the passage uses disciples here are not just the 12 that went with Jesus. Those are the apostles now. This, is though, this full number of the disciples are those who, who have come to faith and following after Christ through the teaching and preaching of the apostles. And so they call the full number of disciples together. They call everyone. And in this, in this they recognize that feeding or caring for widows is vitally important. Imagine this powerful moment as everybody comes together at this one time, at this one place to discuss this one issue. How is this going to pan out? Is there going to be a good church fight here in the early church? Or are we going to come together to decide what the problems are and how we can fix them? However they come, the apostles recognize and speak up. They had a primary task when the church got together. Their primary task was the ministry of the word, the ministry of the word and prayer. This is primary to them. The preaching of the word was primary to the apostles' task. And it's not as if, and I want you to hear this, it's not as if that this task was more important in ministries. It's not as if you place this one above all other ministries. It's that the word in the church, the life of the church, the word of God is primary. The Word of God is what what created the church. The Word of God is what sustains the church. And the church rises and falls upon its foundation on the Word of God. And so the, the health of the church is dependent upon the proclamation and teaching of the Word of God in the life of the church. And so the apostles are saying that's our primary task. We need to make sure we as a church are healthy as we proclaim the good news through the Word of God. Our primary task that has created the church, that is sustaining the church, is the proclamation of the Word of God. And the apostles have been called to teach the Word when the people come together. And think of it that way. When the people gather, our Sunday morning experience even here as we come to Taylor's First, 
the responsibility there lies in the preaching and proclamation of the word and the, the singing and worship of the church. And that was their ministry, as the apostle says. That's what they are to do. The beauty of the church, though, is that God has called all of his people to ministry. I said that, that, that God, is, the church is full of ministers for a diversity of ministries. And probably what happens is all of us in our head think of who we pay to do some sort of task in some sort of way. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm saying is, is that when God calls us as believers and joins us with a local body, a local church, he is commissioning all of us for the ministry that the Lord has laid before us in the life of that church. Opportunities abound for every one of us as ministers of the gospel to work and to serve in different ways and in different places so as the word can increase. The beauty of the church is that God has called all his people to ministry. All of us, different people for different ministries. There's a place for you here. There's a place for you here. We, we see this uh, as a differentiation here in ministries, sometimes referred to as ministries of mercy or mercy ministries. There's ministries of the word. Ultimately, though, I think that, that, that what we need to see is that all of ministry is ministry of the Word. Whether it is service ministry, whether it is... I love the video Piedmont Women's Center sends over because they're just quoting the Word of God. And as, as Stephen says, that's where we go to for our authority on issues such as abortion and care for those who need the greatest care. It's where we go through our, for our authority on our care for widows and others. We look to the Word. To wield the Word is to serve and to teach. And so ultimately, all of it comes back to the Word, and God has equipped us as a church to accomplish many ministries because He has sent all of you here to serve and to work in those areas. The church is equipped for the ministry before them. Here at our church, we recognize how many ministries we may have, but we try to organize them through our encounter, equip, engage, and establish. We also see that there's other ministries out there. And one of the great encouragements that I have as a pastor is to see how many of you are doing ministry in our community and in our places, serving in ways that you find your heart to be fulfilled in following after the Lord. What a gift that is. John Stott, writing in his commentary on this, says, All Christians without exception, being followers of him who came, not to be served but to serve, are themselves called to ministry and indeed give their lives to this task. You are being here. You are bringing, really, my heart great joy in your service. When I see so many serving, even walking the walking the halls this morning to see so many serving in the life of our church, when I hear of the service that goes on in our church to widows and how our deacons are stepping up to serve them and care for them, how many step up in many different places to care and talking with someone this morning who's, who's caring for one in foster care, a service, a ministry that their family can do. These opportunities abound for us. So there's no reason for any of us in here to not be fulfilled in the service of the ministry. But there's opportunities abounding to serve. In the church then, while we have full of ministers for a variety or diversity of ministry the church in this is always to be striving for unity 
While there's a diversity of ministries, we strive for unity together moving forward. The problem arose, so a solution was sought. Not imposed, like good Baptists, they brought together and had a church conference, right? Just this, was, this may have been just the monthly church conference on the last Sunday of the month as they came together, as everybody came, to discuss these issues. The full number brought together, not imposed on them, but a recommendation from the apostles as to how this can be handled. And as they heard, the apostles said, here's what we should do. We, we are going to be preaching the word. We're going to be praying. We don't have time to do the other things as, as they were doing, as Acts chapter 4 said. They laid it at the apostles' feet and the apostles distributed it. Now it's time, they said, for us to, to give this work away so we can stay focused on the preaching of the word. So pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Here, the apostles say to the church, here's a good recommendation for us. Let's choose seven men, good repute, not a popularity contest, not your favorite ones, some who are, as it said, good repute, full of spirit and full of wisdom. Choose those from amongst you. And then they do. They see that this is good. They said, please, the whole gathering in verse 5. They chose Stephen. They chose Philip. Prochorus, Nicanor, I probably should have practiced those names before I read them earlier. Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. They chose these men together. Seeing that they were of good repute, seeing they're full of spirit and wisdom, they chose these names. Then it tells us that they set these before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. They commissioned them for the task. Now while there is some debate over this in Acts chapter 6, I believe this or these are the first deacons of the church. There's debate over it. Many want to say this not. I, I believe these are the first deacons of the church. At least there's a direct line from Acts 6 right to Timothy chapter 3. There's a direct line there. And why is that the case? Because, first of all, the word deacon just simply means to serve. And these were ones who were chosen to serve the same verb. They're chosen to serve in this way. This word deacon is, is one that matches the characteristics that are described, matches what 1 Timothy 3 says about them. Full of spirit, full of wisdom, good repute. It matches all of those things. Now I know, I'm a preacher's kid. I'm a preacher's kid. So we knew as growing up, if you're a preacher's kid, if you're going out to do something that may be a little sketchy, just take a deacon's kid with you because you could always blame the deacon's kid. That's how it worked. Because they will believe that the deacon's kid did it. But here, I believe there is a sense in our passage that we see that the deacons are to be one who are held in high esteem amongst the body as the premier servants of the church. Those who are faithful to serve, those who are faithful to do and give of themselves to take care of things. Some of the arguments against this passage being deacons, I just don't think hold water. One argument says, well, look at them. In the next chapter, Stephen is going to get up and, and bear witness to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he is the greater Moses, and he's going to be stoned for it. 
Or Philip, look at Philip. Just a little bit later, Philip is going to be witnessing there to that, to that one who is the, uh, uh, in Samaria, preaching the gospel in Samaria. You see how these guys are speaking the gospel, preaching the gospel, telling others. That can't be the deacons because no deacon does that. But surely deacons should do that, right? We should not be surprised that our deacons speak of the gospel and speak of this truth and they're not scared in the face of whatever difficulty may come. I'm thankful here at Taylor's First as we have some 70 deacons or so. I'm thankful for their service as they care for the widows, as they care for those who are hospitalized, as they look after those who are in need. I'm thankful and reminded all the time of how they fulfill this role. And in this way, I recognize that our deacons are faithful servants in our church. And they should be. The lead servants. And what are these lead servants to do? They're to fight for unity within the body. Fight for unity. As evidenced by this passage, the apostle said, there's a problem, let's get these leaders together so that problem will, will go away, so they can fight for unity. And you know, what, what happens after this? These seven men make sure that the Hellenist widows have what they need. They make sure that the, the Hebrews' widows have what they need. They make sure that whatever strife may be rising up, they're going to wipe it out. They're going to look to see that they will fight for unity of the body and this plan that was laid out was to help keep the ministry going, to keep the word central as they gather together and to have the members serving together. It's our desire as well to keep the ministry going as we seek to fulfill all the needs in whatever diversity of ministries we have and at the same time to keep unity of the body to work toward the progress and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it will continue. It will continue. Now to summarize this then, you had the problem. The Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The apostles had to continue in the preaching and prayer, uh, preaching of the word and prayer. The solution then, bring the church together, appoint seven godly men to make sure this does not happen, to care as leaders and servants, to make sure that the church would stay in unity, not in separation. And the principle that comes out of this is that there are diversity of ministries in the life of the church and God has equipped each church with the ministers needed through the people that he brings to the church to fulfill the ministries that the church needs to fulfill. The disciples, everyone are there to meet those needs. And what is the result? What is the result? The result is that the word of God continued to increase and spread. The church is to spread the word. The primary task of the church is to spread the word of God. This is the first time Luke uses this phrasing, if you will. The word of God continued to increase. The word continued to increase. This task, my friends, is the primary responsibility of the church. Whatever other responsibilities we do, it is in light of the Word of God continuing to increase, growing in our own hearts and in our own lives and spreading amongst those who need to hear it the most. Anything that can derail us from this task, we must deal with it in a way that honors the Lord and rid any separation, any division, 
fight for unity in that way so the word remains focused. The devil has been trying to stop the word of God. We saw it in the threats and in prison, which are only going to escalate because the very next passage speaks of this Philip when the threats turn to death. We saw it in Ananias and Sapphira and how the hypocrisy of God's people were threatening the, the honesty and integrity of the church. And now we begin to see it in infighting about who gets what and making sure everybody's taken care of. The devil is trying everything he can to stop it from external to internal. But the people, the people outside the church, they're desperate for the gospel. Imagine if the threats had stopped the apostles. You know what, guys? It was a good run, but they told us they're going to put us in prison. They told us it was over if we continue. It was a good try. We made an effort. It's time to stop. Or, or Ananias and Sapphira. Imagine if that story would have gone differently and they were able to live in hypocrisy, having lied to the church, having lied to the leadership, walked away from that, and the story goes of how, yeah, that church is not really in, in, full of integrity or honesty. Ananias and Sapphira lied right there to their face and they did nothing about it. Imagine that kind of word spreading around. Or imagine here, if the church were to split between the Hellenists and the Hebrews because they could not come to a good and faithful solution. Any of those cases or situations are disastrous to the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're disastrous to the unity of the body and the spreading of the word. Lost people, my friends, are not concerned about all our little fights and tiffs and all the other things we have going on. People out there in the world are looking at us and they're trying to find excuses not to join us. They're trying to find reasons to say, oh, that church is useless, that church is nothing, a bunch of hypocrites. A bunch of... They're trying to find all of those things to stop from coming. Look, they're always fighting. And my friends, the day and age for us is that we quit giving them ammunition to stop coming and we start living in such a way that invites them in, that wants to be a part. That we serve and we give in ministry. I love what it says here. Even many priests became obedient to the faith. He's not talking, I don't think, about the Sadducees who were in leadership. He's talking about the priestly class whose responsibilities every day at the temple were to take care of the widows, those in need, to give things. And what did those priests see from the church? They take that seriously. It made a difference in their life. We maintain unity for the sake of the gospel and advancement of the world. And in order to do this, we must pray for discernment to detect both the Holy Spirit and the evil one in our midst. And the advancement of the word is the best of indicators because Satan's desire is to stop it from going. His desire is to bring it to a halt. Our desire must be to proclaim it and to live it. We won't that here at Taylor's First. We want to be able to say in the word increased day by day. And the only way that happens is if we as a church come together in unity around the word to 
fulfill the calling that God has put on our lives to minister in whatever way he's laid in front of us so that the gospel can advance. And when we say that here at Taylor's, we want you here. There is a place for you to serve here. There is opportunities. Even today, as we talk about at 4 o'clock, the opportunities abound for you to serve. And the world needs the word more than ever. The world needs the word more than ever. And if that's the case, then the need for the church to pursue unity and to advance the word is greater than ever. Our desire here is to remain focused on those things, the word of God and the continual proclamation of that word and the serving and ministries through the word. Let's pray together. Father, help us to fulfill the calling you've laid out before us. God, you are gracious and you are kind to us. And so we ask, God, that you would encourage each and every one here today, not only to be a part of this church, but to serve. Encourage us, Father. Encourage us today through your word to, to give our lives to ministry so that the word may increase in our world, in our community. God, every heart in this place, I believe you are calling even now. So some may need to give their lives to, to you, maybe for the first time, turn from their sin and trust in you by faith. And others may need to step up, Father, for the next step in their life as, as you're calling them to serve here in this place, in this church, whatever it may be. God, help us. Help us to fulfill your calling your task as a church to proclaim and increase the word. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for what he has done for us through his death on the cross so that we may be used by you for the glory of his name. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Jesus becomes our great example. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And I, drew, I believe as a church, you are never more like Christ than when you are serving. And the place that he served us the most was his death on the cross. He paid all our debt. So there's nothing left for us to pay. Only thing left for us to do is worship him and glorify his name in our life. So that's our desire. Let's stand together and sing.